I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. The Supreme Court term has just ended with a series of blockbuster opinions involving presidential subpoenas, religious liberty, abortion, the Electoral College, and more. This is the term in which Chief Justice John Roberts put the institutional legitimacy of the court front and center, leading some observers to call him the most powerful chief since Charles Evans Hughes in 1937. On today's episode, we will recap the Supreme Court's historic opinions and look back at this unique term with two of America's leading experts on the Supreme Court. We're so honored to have both of them. Kate Shaw is professor of law and co-director of the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy at Cardozo Law School. She's also a contributor with ABC News and a co-host of the Supreme Court podcast, Strict Scrutiny. Kate, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be here. And Ilya Shapiro is the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Ilya, it's wonderful to have you back on the show. Good to be back with you. Let's begin with the role of Chief Justice John Roberts. In 2007, at the end of his first term as chief, I had a remarkable interview with Chief Justice Roberts where he promised to put the institutional legitimacy of the court front and center and said he would try to do that by persuading his colleagues to converge around narrow decisions that could lead them to be unanimous or nearly so. Kate, did he do that this term? And if so, why did he succeed so dramatically this term in a way that eluded him in previous terms? I do think that the court, in many ways, this term became the Roberts Court, not just in the sense that courts often bear the name of the chief justices um, who sit on them, but in that he actually controlled the court uh, in a way that he maybe hadn't previously while chief. So he's been the chief, of course, for his entire time on the court, but in many substantive ways, this was the Kennedy Court for most of his time on the court, um, and he has cast the deciding vote and written the majority opinion in a significant majority of close cases this term, and also, as you said, in not-so-close cases. So not just in 5-4 cases, but in cases that are somewhat surprisingly a 6-3 or 7-2. Uh, so not only serving as the chief, um, but also as the median justice, and also as this kind of master of the opinions in the biggest cases that the court uh, has heard. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that Roberts did not want the court lurching dramatically to the right in this first year of the newly composed Supreme Court, you know, post-Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation. And so stare decisis was a theme that you heard the Chief Justice return to. Uh, one of his two dissents this term was in the Ramos case, in which the court overturned a precedent, and he objected to that. Uh, he cited stare decisis as his sort of key reason for siding with the more liberal justices in reaffirming the court's abortion decision, Whole Woman's Health, which largely reaffirmed the right set forth in Roe versus Wade. Uh, so I think it's right that he has placed institutional legitimacy at the center of his thinking about the court. I, I think he also understands that this is a hyper-partisan moment and a difficult and volatile period for the country in many ways. And I think he would like the court to help turn the temperature down rather than turn it up. And in pretty masterful ways in a number of these cases, uh, I think that's what he was able to do. I mean, if I can say just one more thing, you know, I've wondered, especially uh, as these last cases uh, involving the president's tax returns uh, have come down, whether the president's constant invocation of Trump judges and Obama judges and his attacks on the court and on Roberts himself have had some effect on the way that the chief approached this term. And not that Roberts was like acting out of spite in any way. I would be shocked, actually, if that were the case. But that Roberts may be stretching to appear even more nonpartisan than he otherwise would because he, he wants very much to resist President Trump's narrative that judges are really just kind of politicians in robes. Ilya, Kate just suggested a number of reasons why Chief Justice Roberts was so successful in emphasizing institutional legitimacy this term, ranging from the retirement of Justice Kennedy and the appointment of new justices who may have been more institutionally minded 
to the partisan climate and his desire to resist uh, the courts appearing political at a time when the legitimacy of all of our institutions is under fire. Uh, Why do you think Roberts was successful this term in a way that he wasn't before? Well, it's kind of funny you ask that because I agree with Kate, I think, in everything she said in, in analyzing why Roberts did what he did. But I'm not sure that he succeeded even on his own terms. Uh, That is, yes, he's absolutely moving strategically and trying to make the court uh, appear less partisan and always trying to depoliticize and extricate the court from uh, our divisive uh, political discourse. But I'm not sure whether his votes this term or in the past where people have raised their eyebrows, uh, whether that's uh, actually succeeding. Um, You know, most people look at uh, outcomes and they look at someone who's either betrayed them or, or otherwise, uh, scratching their heads. Uh, and for example, I think uh, his votes going back to the Obamacare cases in 2012, 2014, uh, you know, those might have contributed to kind of a populist sentiment that it doesn't matter if we're right on the law, we'll still lose with this, these non-legal strategic kind of uh, considerations. Kate, let's start with the subpoena cases. In both cases, uh, they were seven to two, written by the chief. Um, Chief Justice Roberts persuaded his colleagues to converge around a relatively narrow holding, and then some of them wrote separate opinions suggesting that they would have ruled more broadly. Tell us what the subpoena cases held and and, and what they tell us about Chief Justice Roberts' vision of the court's role. Um, Sure. So, um so if, maybe I'll start with the Vance case, which is the case um, uh, brought by the Manhattan DA uh, seeking access to the president's financial records, not from the president directly, but from a number a number of financial institutions, including Mazars. Um, so the court holds and actually is unanimous in this holding that the president does not have absolute immunity from legal process. Um, and that, I think, is significant. The president's team made extremely broad arguments that essentially no legal process or something very close to that uh, position um, applied to the president at all during his term in office. So an extrapolation and a significant one from the proposition that a sitting president can't be indicted to basically uh, seek a ruling that the president can't be investigated or subject to any kind of legal process at all, at least in the context of a state criminal investigation. Uh, And that position was categorically rejected uh, by the entirety of the court. So as you said, the chief justice uh, writes for a um, five-member majority. So it's a majority opinion um, rejecting the claim of absolute immunity from legal process uh, and also rejecting the sort of fallback position that the president's team offered and actually that the Department of Justice joined that, okay, so maybe the president isn't absolutely immune, but in a case like this, some very heightened showing has to be made um, before proceedings like this can move forward. And the chief, again, categorically said the Constitution doesn't entitle the president to absolute immunity or a heightened standard. Um, And, you know, it's an opinion that begins and ends with Chief Justice Marshall in the Aaron Burr case. Uh, And I think it's telling that the chief sort of dwells on the language in in, uh, an opinion in that case at some length. You know, he underscores that the president doesn't stand exempt from the general provisions of the Constitution uh, and goes on to quote some language suggesting, okay, at common law, the only party who didn't have to testify in response to a subpoena was the king. The president, of course, is not a king, right? By contrast, he is of the people and subject to the law. So again, the chief begins there and ends there saying, I I sort of read him to be saying the president's team was asserting something like a royal prerogative, and there's no place in our constitutional scheme for that. Uh, Now, he does remand the case to the lower courts after rejecting these broad arguments to give the president a chance to assert case-specific objections. Um, But I'm not sure having looked at the record fairly closely in this case, that there's much that the president can argue that's going to get him very far uh, with respect to specific objections, uh, in particular, any Article II grounded objections, that there's any specific impediment or impairment of his presidential uh, duties that that the participation or that the continuance of this lawsuit uh, might impose. Um, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch concur in the rejection of these very broad arguments that the president's team made, um, but would have adopted some kind of heightened standard uh, before a local prosecutor like this may proceed against a president or, again, against a a custodian of the president's records. Thomas and Alito both dissent, um, but agree that there is no absolute immunity. So this is, I think, a very significant 
not unqualified, um, but a significant win for the state prosecutors and for the principle that the president does not stand outside of the law, even if some special solicitude, as everyone really agrees is appropriate, has to be provided to the president in the context of litigation like this. Ilya, what is your take on the Vance case? And what does it say about Chief Justice Roberts? Well, I thought you brought us together to provide uh, different perspectives, but I again agreed with what uh, Kate had to say here. Um, I think it was uh, a, a, a Hail Mary, perhaps, to argue for absolute immunity. That That's not going to uh, fly. I also disagree with uh, D.A. Vance, who uh, issued a crowing press release saying that now he's going to get the records. Uh, I agree with Kate that ultimately uh, Donald Trump probably doesn't have uh, 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 reasons that to give the lower court on remand to, to stop the production, but it's not going to happen immediately. It probably won't happen before uh, the election. But what, what this says about uh, the court is that uh, as with United States versus Nixon, as with uh, Jones versus Clinton, the president isn't above the law. And as long as uh, what the uh, the DA is, is, is doing is, uh, uh, is proper and is, and is uh, you know, uh, seeking uh, something as part of a, a proper investigation and not some sort of uh, outlandish fishing expedition, uh, then uh, he's going to be able to get it. And, and by the way, once Donald Trump leaves the White House, then I think a lot of other concerns fall away altogether. At that point, private citizen Trump uh, is uh, in the sh- same shoes uh, with regard to the Vance uh, grand jury as he would have been had he never been president. Kate, tell us about the Mazers case. Uh, break it down as you did so well with Vance. What was the holding that all the justices joined and what were the separate positions? And what does that tell us about the chief? Sure. So this case featured subpoenas from a number of different congressional committees, also directed to third parties, but also seeking a variety of documents related to the president. Um, And this was actually also a 7-2 outcome. So the court also rejects the president and the solicitor general's request to impose some very high standard just at the threshold on any congressional request for presidential personal papers. So remember, you know, these cases would be different if we were talking about the president's official documents, documents that related to his discharge of his duties as president. These are personal papers, mostly from before his time in the White House. Uh, and so I think that actually is, is is quite relevant in the way the court decides these cases. But so as to these personal papers, the court says we're not going to impose some very heightened threshold. Um, but neither are we going to accept what what the, the lawyers for the House basically presented to us, which is this extremely broad vision of Congress's power of inquiry, of its ability basically to articulate any conceivably uh, legitimate legislative purpose and then to get any document under the sun that it requests in furtherance of that purpose. Um, so instead, the court sets forth this kind of multi-factor balancing test. How important is it to access the president's papers? Uh, is the subpoena sufficiently narrow? Is the purpose really valid? What kinds of burdens would it impose? Um, and again, sends the cases back to the lower courts for a review of these subpoenas in light of those new standards. Uh, And I think it's possible that, you know, again, there were a few different subpoenas in these cases, and the subpoenas may fare differently under that standard. But I think it is, as Ilya suggested with the New York case, it is even more clearly the case here that none of these documents will see the light of day anytime soon in light of what follow-on litigation is uh, likely uh, to to uh, to commence right following the decision uh, today, um, I would say you know you know one f- through line of the two cases actually is you know the chief very much trying not to too dramatically upset the Constitution's balance of powers. Um, you know the president's absolute immunity arguments were very broad in the New York case, and again categorically rejected. And the House's arguments about its authority to investigate uh, were quite broad as well. And those two failed, although I would say in a more qualified way. I mean, the court doesn't question Congress's power of inquiry and its power of inquiry even to target the president just says it's important uh, to take care in particular when we're talking about the president um, that he is not unduly burdened or harassed by requests of this sort. And again, significant that this was a 7-2 decision, also drawing uh, separate writings from Justice Thomas and Justice Alito, who would have been uh, far more protective of presidential prerogatives in this context. Ilya, tell us more about uh, Justice Thomas and Alito's uh, position. And also, was it significant that the more liberal justices joined the more conservative justices in creating what essentially was a novel multi-part test that had never been applied before? And what does that say about the willingness of the court to converge around uh, pragmatic outcomes? Well, taking the second question first, 
uh, as uh, John Roberts wrote in the uh, other case, uh, invoking Aaron Burr and John Marshall and all the way through, there's not really that much history on this. These are uh, fairly uh, novel situations. Uh, and so it's uh, like in other areas of law, it's not unexpected for the court to put together where it's hard to draw a bright line, some sort of standards or factors for lower courts to consider. And the ones that they came up with, I think, are quite good. And I, I agree with Kate again uh, that uh, Chief Justice Roberts, along with his colleagues, found a, a good way of balancing the interests here, uh, the, the, the branch uh, interests uh, between the legislative and the executive, as well as the statements about uh, state potential imposition on the federal government or on the federal executive uh, in the Vance case. So uh, returning to the theme that we opened with, this institutional legitimacy, I think these two cases uh, threaded the needle nicely and kind of, they, they were a split decision in effect. Trump wins one, Trump loses another, uh, but nothing immediate happens. Uh, I think those uh, probably were the, the best moments uh, for John Roberts for the court. And so it's apropos that it comes on the very last uh, day. Uh, with respect to the, the dissents in the uh, Mazars case, the, the congressional subpoena, Justice Thomas says that Congress has no power to issue a legislative subpoena for private, non-official documents, whether they belong to the president or not. So even you and I, if, they're, if they want to investigate tax policy uh, through the lens of uh, think tank officials or, or what have you, uh, invest, you know, getting our documents is not proper, Thomas says. Or uh, Justice Alito in dissent says that legislative subpoenas for a president's personal documents are inherently suspicious. They're seldom of special value. They're mostly just essentially going uh, after a, a, a president. So courts have to be very sensitive to the separation of powers issues. So overall, again, a split decision, which met with the conventional wisdom, I should add, about how this was going to go. I don't think anyone was anyone who was following these cases closely was surprised uh, by anything that happened today with them. Uh, but it does, um, you know, now becomes really much more of a political issue than uh, than a legal one. Kate, let us turn to the religious liberty cases. There were at least three significant ones. Uh, tell us about them, and let's begin with the Little Sisters case, where once again the chief persuades a bipartisan coalition to converge around a narrow outcome. There it's the more liberal justices, uh, Kagan and Breyer, who peel off and suggest that they have a different understanding of how it will ultimately play out than some of their colleagues. Um, that's right. And I, and I do think each of these cases does represent a, a broad win for religious liberty. But I do think that the specifics of, of the cases are, are are distinct in important ways. So the Little Sisters case involved um, yet another Supreme Court encounter with the Affordable Care Act uh, and yet another encounter with the Affordable Care Act, so-called contraception mandate. Um, and so and at issue in this case is a regulation that even further expands that exemption, uh, basically to include any employer who objects based on sincerely held religious beliefs to providing birth control and employers who provide based on moral beliefs, although that's a, a slightly less broad category uh, of employers because publicly traded companies aren't included. So that's all encompassed in a 2017 regulation issued by the Trump administration, uh, and there's a challenge to that regulation. Um, and you're right that it is not a unanimous opinion, but it is basically a, a seven or a 5-2-2 opinion um, reversing a Third Circuit decision that had struck down the regulation. Uh, and I should say, although it's a religious liberty issue in the case, it's actually uh, a pure statutory holding, um, basically that it wasn't inconsistent with the statute to have promulgated this regulation or, or, or that the agency did not, did not exceed its authority in, in promulgating this broad regulation, and nor did it fatally err under the Administrative Procedure Act in the way it went about promulgating this regulation. Um, so that's a Thomas opinion for five justices. And then Kagan and Breyer, as you suggested, do join in the result, um, but write separately to suggest that actually there are very much open questions about the substantive permissibility of this regulation under the Administrative Procedure Procedure Act, which is a statute that has gotten quite a workout in the Supreme Court in this term, as well as other recent terms, but especially this one. Uh, so, but as of now, this regulation stands, which does mean very broad exemptions for any objecting employer, um, which could be to the tune of 100, 150,000 uh, employees who as of now, under this ruling, do not get access to the no-cost birth control that the ACA as originally implemented it guaranteed. Ilya, tell us about the ministerial exemption case. Uh, once again, a seven to two decision. The dissenters, once again, are Justices Sotomayor and Justice Ginsburg. 
what did the court hold and, and how was Chief Justice Roberts able to persuade the more liberal justices to join a decision expanding the ministerial exemption to include uh, teachers in religious schools whose primary function wasn't to teach this, uh, religious doctrine? Uh, sure. Uh, before I get to that, though, one thing, one more thing on Little Sister of the Poor, and that's that no employees, and this case has been going on for years now, and no employee of the Little Sisters has actually complained, and that's why you know Pennsylvania and New Jersey had to step in. I really hope they drop this suit, this harassing of the of the nuns who are doing, you know, have a vow of poverty and are dealing with social services. But uh, anyhow, the uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe case uh, involves something that I think a lot of people hadn't heard of, because this is an employment discrimination case, but it doesn't involve so-called culture war issues like uh, contraceptives and abortion and uh, LGBT rights or anything like that. Uh, two Catholic schools uh, in these cases fired fifth grade teachers uh, one, uh, the allegation is because of her age, and the other because she took time off to treat an illness. Now, these are not protected under Title VII, but there are federal uh, uh, employment protections of other kinds. Uh, and the schools are claiming that the First Amendment uh, religion clauses allow them to make such personnel decisions free from government uh, interference. And historically, there has been this recognition of the ministerial exemption. Uh, religious institutions can hire ministers uh, without regard to whatever other uh, employment law overlay uh, may be there. Uh, three years ago, or, or sorry, eight years ago, in fact, the, the court in Hosanna Tabor um, uh, involving a, a church school and a arbitration agreement and, and what have you, uh, the court ruled to uh, resurrect or, or say that it's still good, this ministerial exemption. And so this case built on that Hosanna Tabor case and said that there is no rigid formula for applying this principle. By a 7-2 to two vote, uh, the court did rule for the schools uh, and said that the ministerial exemption depends on whether a particular employee, uh, what he or she does. Uh, are they educating young people in the faith, inculcating its teachings, training them to a life uh, to, to live their faith? Kind of a, a functional test rather than what's their title or what their degree uh, is in. Very, you know, kind of a, a broad ruling. And, and that's what the dissenters, uh, uh, Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg, say that this now extends to lay faculty uh, and uh, and what have you. Justice Thomas, joined by Gorsuch, had a concurrence uh, saying that uh, um, the First Amendment requires deference to religious organizations. So forget the functional test. We should just accept the good faith claims. But regardless, uh, a broad exemption for Catholic schools, at least, and probably other uh, religious organizations, uh, if they're advocating, if they're teaching their faith. Kate, why do you think the uh, liberal justices joined that case? And then introduce us to the Espinoza case, which was a five to four decision uh, written by Chief Justice Roberts involving the conditions under which state aid can go to religious schools and, you know, and, and broadly help us make sense of these three cases. Why was Roberts able to achieve this bipartisan consensus in, in two of the cases, but not the third? Uh, right. So in the ministerial exception case, um, you know, as you said, it's a 7-2 decision. And so Kagan and Breyer join the majority opinion. Uh, and I have to imagine that that's in part so that they could shape some of the language of the opinion. So Ilya described it as a very broad opinion. Uh, and I think that's a fair reading of it. But I also think there are parts of the opinion that suggest a narrower application. So to individuals who work, say, in Catholic schools, but are teaching a subject, uh, there's a footnote regarding a world religion teacher, not somebody who's inculcating the faith in any way but is teaching about the religions of the world, uh, this person presumably wouldn't be uh, subject to the ministerial exemption and thus could claim the protections of generally applicable anti-discrimination laws. Um, and I, it seems to me that that logic would extend to all kinds of other employees of even religious schools, um, you know, individuals who are teaching physical ed, who are teaching chemistry, who are serving uh, in non-teaching capacities, at least some of them. Uh, so, so I think that you know, some of the time, of course, you can. There is power in joining and shaping an opinion, and I, and I and Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer, uh, in past terms, but but certainly in this one, uh, we have seen kind of walk that path. And so, I, I think Ilya is right. There is a possibility that this is a very broad opinion, in particular when the question is presented, as it soon will be, about the application of its logic not just to parochial schools, but universities and nonprofits and other kinds of entities. Uh, but I think there is cabining language in the opinion that seems important to me. 
Um, so Espinoza, you asked about, that is a 5-4 opinion. Um, and I think it's not surprising because that one does strike me, uh, at least uh, much of its language, uh, as fairly broad and it breaks along the traditional line. So uh, the chief justice for himself and the conservative justices uh, and then the liberal justices dissenting. So it issue is a Montana state constitutional provision uh, that uh, prohibits state aid to religious schools. Uh, and the court, in a pretty sweeping opinion, strikes that down, holding that if states want to subsidize private schools, they must also subsidize religious schools. Uh, and that does feel like a long way from the position the court once took, even as recently as 15 years ago, that, you know, you know, it, you, you, you certainly weren't forced to use state funds for private schools, and you may even run into establishment clause problems if you do. Here we see the sort of receding of the establishment clause. So much less concern about state funding of religion posing a constitutional problem under the Establishment Clause, and much more concern about protecting free exercise clause values, uh, to the point that even the choice to subsidize certain kinds of education, but to exclude religious education, violates the Free Exercise Clause. Um, so, you know, there, of course, those two constitutional provisions are in constant tension, and there is play in the joints between the two. The Chief Justice acknowledges that, uh, although Breyer in dissent accuses the court of not actually grappling with that uh, play in the joints and of overvaluing these free exercise clause values uh, at the expense of the Establishment Clause. And, and, and that, I think, is uh, actually is a broad opinion, although the breadth of uh, Guadalupe, the ministerial case, again, I think is uh, very much in question. Ilya, any final thoughts on the religion cases? And then introduce, if you will, the question of precedent. In the abortion case, the, the June medical case, the chief voted with the more liberal justices to reaffirm the Hellerstadt decision from a few years back. Uh, and in the Ramos case, as, as Kate mentioned, the chief dissented in order to defend precedent. What did we learn about the chief's view of precedent in these cases? And what does it say about his vision of institutional legitimacy as well as the future of Roe v. Wade? Sure. Um, on the religion cases, um, well, first of all, I think uh, Espinoza, I guess the inverse of, of, of Kate's take on the ministerial exemption, I, I don't know how broad it is. It's uh, There's kind of been a series of cases uh, to school choice programs, challenges on the Establishment Clause in various ways going back 20 years. And this, to me, seems like the last legal impediment to school choice programs, whether through tax credits or vouchers or or otherwise, and I don't know what else legally there could be to, to challenge it. Now it just becomes a pure uh, uh, policy uh, issue, so that's significant. Uh, but broader, what this uh, the the religion cases we've just been talking about. Uh, combined with the case I, I don't think we're going to talk about. I think you had a whole separate uh, program on Bostock, the employment discrimination, Title VII protections for sexual orientation and gender identity, seems to mean that the court is judicially getting towards what Utah got to legislatively, what's known as the Utah Compromise. That is, uh, a lot of protections and, and, and rights for the LGBTQ community, while at the same time preserving uh, religious uh, liberty and exemptions and, and things like that. You know, I'd rather that all happen legislatively at a federal level uh, as well, but uh, you know, Congress isn't legislating much of anything, I guess, and so the court has to come up with these accommodations. And that's why, by the way, also, well, when people were uh, renting their garments over Gorsuch having written that Bostock case, uh, I think that was uh, so premature in light of his previous and since uh, writings on uh, religious freedom. Uh, now, getting into the uh, the precedent and the uh, and the abortion case, where religion was only uh, an issue, I suppose, uh, behind the scenes, not, not part of the law uh, at all. Uh, this was an interesting scenario where um, uh, involved in a Louisiana uh, regulation that required uh, all uh, doctors who perform abortions to have admitting privileges at hospitals within 30 miles. Uh, Louisiana said that this is because if something happens and there needs to be more medical care, you need to have that kind of uh, uh, safety and, and, and health uh, protection. Uh, four years earlier, a similar regulation out of Texas was invalidated by the court uh, by a vote of five to three, and that's significant. The case was Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt. Uh, in the five were Justice Kennedy joining the liberals. Uh, in dissent, 
was, among others, Chief Justice Roberts. And then this was after Justice Scalia had passed. That's, what, that's why there were only eight justices. Now, four years later, as you said, John Roberts joins in the majority, but only in the judgment, only in invalidating this Louisiana regulation, again, uh, refusing to endorse and specifically saying he disagrees with uh, Justice Breyer's uh, plurality opinion, which was very similar to his opinion in that Texas case, Hellerstedt, um, uh, but Robert says, uh, even though I continue disagreeing with that, for purposes of stare decisis, the idea that sometimes it's uh, less disruptive to society to let uh, erroneous precedent still be on the books than to correct it, uh, I will vote uh, to invalidate this restriction. Notably, that's the first time that John Roberts has ever voted to invalidate an abortion restriction or regulation. Uh, I'm not sure the next time we get uh, an abortion case, if it's something other than admission privileges, uh, you know, whether he'll uh, uh, go back to his normal ways, probably. Uh, but what's curious about his invocation of precedent and stare decisis is that in much uh, uh, older precedents, more entrenched precedents, he has had uh, much less of a problem overcoming them. For example, in Citizens United, uh, that overturned a 20-year-old precedent, very obviously controversial case. John Roberts himself wrote a concurring opinion specifically on the importance of stare decisis and why, nevertheless, it was overcome in that case. In the Janus case, uh, just a couple of terms ago, involving uh, workers' First Amendment rights, that overturned a 40-year-old precedent that was quite significant. Uh, and Roberts, again, was, was in the majority there. The Nick case, a property rights case, I think last term or two, two terms ago, overturned a 34-year-old precedent. Uh, so it's not that John, you know, John Roberts doesn't have the Clarence Thomas view of stare decisis, whereby there shouldn't be any. If you think something's wrong, say so. Uh, but uh, he's definitely not someone who every time there's a precedent, he will uh, uh, always go along with it. And so this was another one of those, I think, strategic moves by him to make the court look less politicized, whether he's successful in that uh, perception or not, uh, and also to make the, uh, the vote something other than uh, Republican-appointed justices versus Democratic-appointed justices on an issue that's perhaps uh, foremost in the minds of voters when they think about the Supreme Court and political claims. Kate, why do you think the chief voted with the liberals in the June medical case, but not, as Ilya said, in cases like Citizens United and Janus? Was there something specific about abortion? And, and he was quite uh, fervent in his Burkean defensive precedent in June medical. What does that tell us about the future of Roe? He really was. And, you know, Ilya's right that he has, his history is kind of a mixed bag in terms of respect for stare decisis. Um, and here, you know, it's a short discussion, but it really packs a punch. He says, you know, he's, he's citing, I think, Justice Jackson here, but he says the constraint of precedent distinguishes the judicial method and philosophy from those of the political and legislative processes. And, you know, that does seem to be at the heart of his decision here to return to the themes that we sort of started with, that it would look so nakedly political for a changed court to so dramatically change the law on identical facts that he could not go along with the dissenting justices and vote to uphold this law. Um, so I don't know whether that's a broader evolution on the sort of importance and centrality of stare decisis to the rule of law, whether uh, how much it tells us about how he is likely to vote in uh, a future abortion case. I mean, there is a possibility that it was simply, as Ilya suggests, the fact that he was served up an identical law. And because of the identity of the Louisiana and the Texas laws at issue, um, he did not think the court could continue to hold itself out as standing above politics uh, and yet change course just because of the change of a single member, uh, you know, a, a single relevant vote. Um, and yet it did. And so he doesn't say anything that sort of tips his hand one way or the other about how this logic will apply if, in fact, he is confronted with, in a more direct way, the future of Casey and of Roe, because really the parties in this case accepted the abortion precedents, the, the big ones. And the arguments were just about whether whole woman's health could be distinguished or it should be overturned. So that's the 2016 case. Um, but the older, more entrenched cases were not squarely at issue in uh, this June medical case. And so I think it's possible, as Ilya suggests, this is the only time Chief Justice Roberts has voted to strike down an abortion restriction, and, and potentially this will remain the only one. But I think that he will have to grapple with his own reasoning as to stare decisis um, if, in fact, he is asked in a more direct way to overturn uh, Casey and Roe. And I mean, maybe one more thing on sort of identical laws. Remember, in Gonzalez versus Carhartt, the court was faced with this federal uh, partial birth abortion act. Um, and 
it upheld that law despite having struck down just, you know, a handful of years earlier a nearly identical state law. Now, he wasn't on the court yet when the Nebraska case came before the court, um, but adherence to a prior decision on a, on a, on a materially similar law uh, wasn't something that drove him, uh, at least to the point of, of changing his vote, in that earlier sort of pair of abortion cases. And that seems relevant here. I, you know, I think it is right that the John Roberts of 2020 is quite different from the John Roberts of 2006, 2007, 2008, uh, and you know, just how different, I suppose, remains to be seen. Ilya, as you say, we did do a podcast with wonderful discussions about the Bostic case involving LGBTQ uh, discrimination and the DACA case. But let's take a beat on both cases and what they tell us about the chief. So uh, in in the Bostic, uh, Chief Justice Roberts joined Justice Gorsuch's opinion, which was uh, imbued with a kind of literalist textualism, despite the fact that a few years ago in the second Obamacare case, the chief had embraced a more purposive approach to statutory interpretation. What does that say about his willingness to join an interpretive approach that he may not agree with in order to avoid five to four splits? And then talk about his decision in the DACA case, which, as, as we discussed on that great podcast, is of a piece with his decision in the census case last year, insisting on proper administrative procedures before executive orders can reverse presidential policies. Yeah, I think uh, I think in Bostock, his vote was uh, purely strategic, so as not to uh, uh, leave uh, Justice Gorsuch hanging, if you will, with the uh, more liberal justices, uh, and, and to not have the court with another five to four decision on such a contentious issue. You know, he's willing to be the sixth vote on a whole lot of issues, whether uh, in decisions that go to the left or to the right, or however you want to characterize. And he's not so willing to be, um, you know, the the fifth vote if you're breaking ground, if you're doing some sort of narrow technical decision, like uh, like DACA, like uh, the census question, where I think he tried to thread the needle and didn't really make uh, any group happy, giving another bite at the apple, which will ultimately uh, uh, turn on the politics. If Donald Trump is reelected, then uh, then DACA, there'll be another uh, uh, case, another litigation over an attempt to rescind it, no doubt. Uh, well, Donald Trump won't be president during the next census regardless, but that is the implication of his census question case. So I think uh, uh, Bostock and DACA and June Medical, those are all examples where I don't think you can say, well, is this faithful to textualism or purposivism or originalism? This is pure Roberts minimalism being incremental, again, being strategic, uh, so I wouldn't hold uh, uh, anything uh, in those uh, cases to to some future case. Nor, for purposes of abortion, circling back on our previous discussion, uh, does the June medical case say what the new standard is? If, in effect, Roberts's uh, stare decisis opinion, the, the binding opinion, I guess, from that case, uh, because it's the narrowest one, uh, uh, reverts uh, the abortion regulation standard for, that courts are, are supposed to use to evaluate uh, to the Casey undue burden standard, uh, well, what does that mean? For so long, undue burden was effectively any regulation that gave Anthony he- Kennedy a headache. Uh, what does it mean under the Roberts court without Kennedy? We just don't know. It'll take a fresh uh, type of case of that kind in a non-election year for John Roberts truly to uh, feel free uh, to express himself on the legal merits uh, as he did, for example, whether it be in Citizens United or uh, Obergefell, the gay marriage case, or so many others. You know, He is by no means moving to the left or becoming some sort of qu- squishy moderate. Uh, he is instead trying to be uh, a, a chief that brings the court together or make it look uh, less partisan. Again, I, I, I doubt how successful he is in that project just because of the nature of the cases they decide and the nature of our politics at the moment. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, that's where I think he's leaving us. On that point, Kate, do you agree with Ilya that uh, the chief may not, in fact, be making the court appear less partisan despite his efforts? Or do you think he's being successful? And talk about the cases we've just put on the table, Bostock and the DACA case. And also, I'm curious about whether you think that he agreed with the results in these cases, but was just willing to embrace interpretive methodology that he might not have used if he were writing on his own, or if he was really casting uh, purely strategic votes. 
You know, I, I, on the interpretive methodology question, I'm not sure the chief fetishizes methods the way some of his colleagues do. You know, Gorsuch is obviously a proud and avowed textualist, and Thomas, of course, is an originalist, and, you know, the, the others sort of dabble in different kinds of methods. Um, but, you know, the chief justice, I don't think, has any qualms about signing on to a textualist opinion, though he tends to think that other kinds of considerations are relevant when doing statutory interpretation, um, just as, you know, for example, in the Heller opinion, he signs on to a deeply originalist Scalia opinion, though he himself is not a committed originalist the way uh, that Scalia was. And so so, so I just don't, I, I'm not sure. I think that there are other considerations that sometimes supersede these methodological ones uh, for him. And that, I think, is why he didn't write separately in Bostock, despite, I'm sure, not agreeing with every word of Justice Gorsuch's opinion, uh, at least in, in its method. Um, I do think he probably thought that the result was correct. And I, and I think that it is an interesting question. Ilya mentions the sixth vote, whether he would have cast the fifth vote in Bostock. And, and I don't know. Um, it strikes me as unlikely, actually. And I think that there was some, you know, kind of interpersonal dynamics at the court and sort of the public appearance of the decision, uh, you know, being on stronger footing uh, as a 6-3 rather than a, a 5-4 opinion. Um, so, so I think that those considerations were probably to a degree uh, uh, in the mix. Um, in terms of, you know, sort of depoliticizing or reducing the appearance of politics and the court's decisions in cases like the DACA case. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know how the politics play in, in some ways what the court seemed to be doing in both DACA and the census case, which is a, which are very similar cases, um, is, you know, to, to do this very close reading of the record in light of the Administrative Procedure Act's requirement uh, of reasoned decision-making, right? That agencies base their decisions on reasons and that they give those reasons to courts and to the public so they can be scrutinized. Uh, and that there's a very good and important political accountability reason for those rules and norms in administrative law, which is that, yeah, you know, administrations can change policy a, a great deal. But, um that they need to tell us why they're making those decisions. And in both cases, it seemed to be uh, what seemed to be happening inside agencies was something less than a full explanation of what was actually driving administration actors. So in the census case, the administration told a public story about interest in vigorously enforcing the Voting Rights Act when it was quite clear that was not why the administration wanted to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. Um, here in the DACA case, the court doesn't ground its decision in a pretext analysis, doesn't say you told a story that was different from what was really driving you. But in some ways, I think that's actually what the court was saying. So the administration said, we feel we need to end DACA because we think it's unlawful. Attorney General Sessions has so concluded. The court, the Fifth Circuit said that about this uh, sister program, DAPA. And for all those reasons, we think that the, the, the program is unlawful. But as the Chief Justice, in his opinion, points out, um, there wasn't a, a real thorough analysis of the uh, kind of costs of, uh, of of ending DACA, the reliance interests of hundreds of thousands of recipients and their families and their children and their spouses and their workplaces. Um, and there wasn't actually a careful consideration of what DACA is. It's both relief from deportation and eligibility uh, for work authorization. And in some ways, you know, the, the what the agency didn't do was just say, we have decided as a policy matter, we want to end this program uh, that benefits this extremely sympathetic um, and sort of uh, quite popular from the perspective of public opinion, a group of individuals. Instead, it pointed to these other reasons. Um, and I think what the court has seemed to be saying in both cases was, you know, give your reasons um, and then we can scrutinize them. But these sort of manufactured reasons or um, or incomplete reasons are not sufficient to support this very dramatic action that was taken in, in both cases. And and we will see, you know, the president has made noise, as he did following the census case, um, about attempting to start afresh on rescinding DACA. Um, and I, I genuinely don't know whether that's something that is likely to see the light of day or whether the lawyers inside the administration uh, will prevail upon him that he's unlikely to succeed uh, in getting a different result if he tries uh, again with DACA. Ilya, let's talk about some of the cases that were more under the radar. Uh, there were the cases the court didn't hear uh, involving the Second Amendment, for example, among other issues. And there was the denial for injunctive relief in the South Bay United Pentecostal Church case, where uh, that was a five to four decision with Roberts joining the liberals. And Roberts said that basically it should be up to politically accountable officials of the state to guard and protect uh, medical safety. Uh, what does Roberts's role in this 
uh, under-the-radar shadow docket tell us about his vision of institutional legitimacy? I think the two huge um, groupings of cert denials were significant, uh, as significant enough to talk about as much as uh, some of the cases that actually were decided. Second Amendment was one of them, uh, and qualified immunity was the other. Uh, and those denials, I think it was 10 cases in each, or 10 and 12, uh, came the same day that Bostock was decided. So it was a, it was a huge day, uh, I think it was three Mondays ago. Uh, notably, Justice Thomas dissented from denial in both the Second Amendment and the qualified immunity case. I think he was joined by uh, Gorsuch on the Second Amendment, as he has been in the past, and by no one in qualified immunity, not even Sotomayor, who you, whom you would have uh, expected. Both of those, I think, are real blows and real abdications of the court's responsibility uh, to fix the law and to show the lower courts how to do things. The, the court, having uh, declared moot the Second Amendment case that it had taken up this term, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, after having for 10 years not taken up a case once Kennedy was gone and presumably a more reliable vote uh, for Second Amendment rights, uh, Kavanaugh was on the court. That's why they took it. Uh, and yet it was mooted out, although Kavanaugh joined that mooting, he said, but there are many good positions out there that we can consider. Uh, and yet there weren't four votes to grant, which is curious. With the, the only, you know, Occam's razor suggests that it's because the four more conservative justices aren't sure where Roberts would be on that, even though he was in the majority in both Heller, which declared the individual right in 2008, and McDonald, which expanded it to the states in 2010. So that was a real curiosity. Um, and uh, unqualified immunity, similarly, an outcry, a cross-ideological outcry uh, for reform. Uh, perhaps what happened there is that it came right at the maximum time of protests uh, for police reform after the killing of George Floyd, and maybe Roberts convinced his colleagues that this was not the time to take these cases and further inflame or, or keep the flames going. I, I don't know, some kind of consideration like that. But a lot of people, huge numbers of people disappointed by both of those moves. Other shadow docket things, you know, that East Bay one, which I think is the only pandemic-related case to get to the court, although I, may, I might be missing something, that was still in the fairly early stages. If that case had been decided a month later, after the California authorities had allowed uh, mass protests to go on, but not churches, I think that would have gone uh, a different way. But it just came a little early where uh, certainly courts were still quite deferential to uh, government public health initiatives. Kate, uh, what would you like to share about the shadow docket? Ilya uh, has mentioned the Second Amendment and qualified immunity cases. Uh, we've talked about this one corona case, uh, and there was also a voting rights case from Texas that the court decided not to hear right now. Uh, what does the shadow docket tell us about the chief justice's role and vision? I actually think that last topic you mentioned, Jeff, is a really important one. So the intersection of COVID and the sort of democratic process, these primary elections and the upcoming November election. Uh, so remember back in April, there was um, an emergency petition to the court to block a district court opinion uh, out of Wisconsin that would have expanded access to absentee voting. Um, you know, this is the early days of the pandemic. Most states had actually rescheduled their primaries. Wisconsin, after a lot of back and forth between the political branches in that state, decided to go forward with its early April primary. Um, but there was a crush of requests for absentee ballots that the state officials just couldn't satisfy. And some litigation resulted in a district court order that would have expanded access to absentee voting and extended the deadline for returning, both receiving and returning those ballots. Um, and that was affirmed by the Seventh Circuit and the court uh, in a 5-4 opinion um, blocked the lower court order expanding access to absentee voting in relevant part. Um, there's one, uh, maybe I'll just leave it at that, it largely blocked the lower court order expanding access to absentee voting. Um, and so the election went forward in Wisconsin under the existing rules. Uh, many people, you know, at least 10,000 individuals did not receive absentee ballots they had requested, and many did turn out to vote in person, you know, potentially exposing themselves and poll workers um, to the virus. There were uh, crazy delays. Milwaukee was down from 80 to 5 in-person polling places, uh, largely because a lot of poll workers were scared to come to work and thus they couldn't staff the polling places. Uh, and so in a 5-4 decision, the chief justice uh, held that basically a principle that the court often uses in election cases, the Purcell principle, which basically provides that federal courts should not interfere with the mechanics of elections, election sort of uh, processes on the eve of an election. Uh, 
required the court to stay the district court order, which had been issued within, you know, a number of days of the election. Um, and there was uh, a very fiery dissent from Justice Ginsburg for herself and the more liberal justices. Um, and I, I wonder whether we will see more like that. We actually saw something just within the last uh, week and a half similar out of Alabama, um, a similar district court order expanding access to absentee voting. This is for an Alabama state runoff in mid-July. And uh, the court, without opinion, um, stayed that district court order. And we don't really know why. I I presume because the state of Alabama invoked the same Purcell principle that had been at issue in the Wisconsin case, that that is why the court decided to intercede. Um, but, but I do think that it is concerning that the chief justice seems to be on board with limiting the ability of lower courts to do some remedial work to protect access to the ballot uh, in this unprecedented moment of election-related challenges. And I think and worry a lot about the intersection of that tendency, a tendency not to let courts do too much uh, in the election sphere, potentially intersecting with some of President Trump's rhetoric, raising doubts and questions about the integrity of absentee voting, which is going to be a central feature of a successful election in many states, many of which just didn't have much absentee voting uh, before. So we're going to be in fairly uncharted waters uh, when it comes to election administration, and some of it uh, may well end up before the court. Ilya, as Kate says, there's nothing more politically contested, of course, than these voting rights cases. And the RNC versus DNC Wisconsin case you just mentioned was a clear failure of Chief Justice Roberts's vision of nonpartisan, non-ideological uh, decisions. Um, what can we expect in the election decisions that may well come before the court before the November election? Uh, given the Chief Justice's aspiration on the one hand and, and, and the Wisconsin case on the other, and maybe in the course of this answer, talk about the other cases where there were five to four conservative liberal splits, including the Celia Law Consumer Financial Protection Bureau case. Sure. I had forgotten about that Wisconsin case. It was such at the at the beginning of the pandemic, it feels like uh, several lifetimes ago uh, at this point. I think I recall agreeing with the outcome at the at the time, but I don't remember now for what reasons uh, so much has, has uh, gone uh, by uh, under the wall under the bridge uh, since then. Uh, yeah. So what's interesting, we talk about uh, Chief Justice Roberts navigating the shoals, depoliticizing the court. Uh, when you look past the DACA and June medical decisions, and I suppose today's Oklahoma uh, ruling, uh, which uh, w w where uh, Justice Gorsuch joined the liberals in, in a five to four, the statistics actually make it look like a very conservative term. There were 13 five to four cases this term. Nine of them had the five Republican appointed or more conservative justices together. Uh, only three of them, as I said, twice with Roberts and once with Gorsuch, had one of the conservatives joining the liberals and then one heterodox uh, alignment. That's very different from the previous term, where of the 25 to 4 cases, eight of them had one of the conservatives defecting to join the liberals. Only seven of them had the conservatives hanging together. So it could be that Roberts is, uh, you know, at the high profile, things that, uh, you know, uh, even the layman is paying attention to, he's voting strategically, but this just goes to show that, that underneath it all, he uh, remains a conservative. And I suppose on his vision of voting rights and allowing states to regulate their own election procedures, uh, uh, he remains that way. But of those other five to four kind of conventional or expected cases, I, I, I guess, uh, we talked about Espinoza, uh, let's see, uh, sale of law. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting case involving the appointments clause, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, when it was created by Dodd Frank, uh, is really an extraordinary agency. Not only does it write its own rules, investigates, enforces, adjudicates, and punishes, uh, but uh, gets uh, its funding not from Congress but from the Federal Reserve. It's so independent, it's probably the uh, fifth branch of government, not even the fourth. Uh, and it has uh, one single director. It's not like the SEC or the FTC, which has a whole commission. Uh, and that issue here was that director was insulated from political accountability, could not be removed except for malfeasance or, or negligence for cause is the technical legal term. And the court split. Uh, five of them found that this was an unconstitutional structure. A different seven, an overlapping different seven, said that the remedy is to just sever that for cause provision. 
uh, and uh, uh, make make that director of the CFPB removable by the president. So I guess if we get a President Biden next year, we'll have a new director uh, of the CFPB. A stern dissent by, by Thomas and Gorsuch saying, look, this is not how Congress would have designed it. Uh, and this uh, still is, is improper. But at the end of the day, kind of a, a minimalistic John Roberts uh, opinion, as he did eight years ago in involving a different alphabet agency where he severed the four cause removal provisions rather than disrupting the agency operations. Kate, well, this has been an illuminating tour of a remarkable term. But I want to ask again the question I began with. Why was it this term that Chief Justice Roberts was more successful, at least in the high-profile cases, of achieving the vision that he set out at the beginning of his chief justiceship. Um, are the justices as a whole aware of the remarkably partisan climate and determined to join the chief in preserving the legitimacy of the court at a time when all of the uh, institutions' legitimacy is under siege? Uh, talk about the roles of uh, Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, uh, who joined the court since Justice Kennedy's uh, retirement, and to what degree is this uh, Roberts Court uh, legitimacy vision likely to persist next term? You know, he may have been more successful this term because he kind of led by example. He himself crossed over from expected positions in a number of cases, and potentially that invites others to do the same. And so, you know, so I do think that um, you know, some of these interesting, not just Gorsuch and Roberts joining the liberals in the Title VII case, but Breyer and Kagan, as we talked about, uh, joining the conservatives in the ministerial exception case, the Little Sisters Affordable Care Act case, uh, Thurisigium, a case that we did not talk about in which Breyer and Kagan also joined the uh, more conservative justices. Uh, the fact that you had Gorsuch and the liberals in Ramos, this non-unanimous jury case, uh, I think was potentially significant. Kavanaugh writing the majority opinion in uh, a death penalty case, Flowers, while Gorsuch dissented with Thomas and Alito. So you had a number of interesting lineups. Um, you know, Ilya may be right that the number is lower, but the salience of a lot of the cases in which you saw unexpected uh, alliances forged, um, I think maybe matters more than the raw number. So, so it may be that uh, as the chief, you know, himself cast votes that appear surprising, um, there is, you know, sort of a ripple effect among the other justices. I mean, I, I also think there are a couple of, of explanations we haven't really talked about. I mean, one possibility is that the fact that particularly during the presidential primary season, there was quite a lot of interest in Supreme Court reform, right? Talk of term limits of, you know, rotating panels of uh, uh, lower court judges uh, sitting as Supreme Court justices, of expansion of the size of the Supreme Court. Uh, so so I wonder whether on some level the sort of political spotlight um, has had some impact on the Supreme Court uh, in its interest in, you know, working even harder to appear uh, apolitical. Um, you know, it, it may be that some of these opinions, I mean, I, I think it's a mixed bag. There are, you know, sort of liberal wins and conservative wins. And I think that the liberal wins are qualified ones. So we shouldn't overstate the degree to which uh, this was a term with a lot of liberal victories. Largely, it was just status quo preservation on issues like abortion. Um, but that in and of itself is significant. I mean, I think that the court having... Um, defied expectations that it would move dramatically to the right with the addition of Justice Kavanaugh um, is a significant fact in and of itself. Uh, and one other sort of, you know, background atmospheric fact that may have played into some of uh, the outcomes this term is that, you know, the, the sort of bruising confirmation process of Justice Kavanaugh is still fresh uh, for the court. And, and, and so staying out of the political spotlight to the degree possible, you know, still in the shadow of all of that, uh, may have had something to do with this term looking different from the terms that came before. Ilya, Kate just identified a series of explanations for the chief's success this term, including him leading by example in casting votes with the liberals that might have encouraged his colleagues to act similarly, and also the political heat of the presidential primary system and a desire to avoid court packing and other political backlashes. Uh, what are your thoughts that might explain why the chief succeeded this term in a way that he has not succeeded in previous terms? Well, again, Jeff, I'm going to push back at your characterization of his success. Success at what? Being in the majority? Absolutely. By far the justice most in the majority. I think it's upwards of 95% of the cases he was on the winning side and all but one of the five to four decisions. That's you know, personally successful, uh, I suppose, or succeeding in showing that it really is the Roberts court. It is not 
any longer, obviously, the Kennedy court. It's not the Gorsuch court. Uh, Gorsuch swung over more times the, the previous term than, than, than he did. Um, I don't know how successful he is behind the scenes. We can we can speculate about that. You know, some have called it in the in the early days before we got the religion uh, opinions after Bostock and and DACA and June Medical. People were calling it the Kagan Court that she was somehow uh, uh, whispering in his ear and, and succeeding in, in in moving him over or something like that. Uh, so I don't know uh, the legitimacy of the court or perceptions of the of the court in general. We haven't had a Gallup poll, I think, since last September, uh, but that generally tracks, you know, if conservatives are happy with the results, then he'll, then the court will be popular among conservatives and, and vice versa. So I don't know how much that necessarily shows. Has he succeeded in removing the court as an election-related issue? I don't think so, because that's just all about the numbers game. And we heard rumors of potential departures by Justices Thomas or Alito. And of course, Justice Ginsburg is 88 years old, so will depart sooner or later, presumably. Um, uh, and that's going to be a huge issue. Donald Trump uh, says he's going to issue another list of potential uh, justices by September. Uh, the you know certain activist groups, not the Biden campaign, have done likewise. So uh, judicial nominations, Supreme Court uh, nominations and vacancies and the direction of the court is going to be an issue uh, more than any other election other than possibly 2016, uh, which will be good for my book sales, uh, I suppose. Supreme disorder available for pre-order on Amazon and wherever fine books are sold. But I'm not sure that he is succeeding on his own terms of having the court being perceived as not part of the overall uh, political food fight that, that we are living. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this great discussion. Uh, I'm going to ask a version of the same question just to get your really condensed and distilled thoughts. And I'll throw out uh, a th the thesis, the one that I've been pressing throughout the podcast, and say Chief Justice Roberts is the most successful chief since Charles Evans Hughes in 1937 in promoting the nonpartisan legitimacy of the court. Agree or disagree? Kate, the first closing thoughts are to you. Um, I think I will offer a qualified agree. Um, you know, I think that um, there were, you know, there, there, the, the moments of unity, you think of Earl Warren and Brown versus Board of Education, right? We haven't had moments of unity like that from the Roberts Court. And it would have been, I think, um, a real statement to have a unanimous opinion in any of the really high-profile cases this term. Uh, I think the chief probably would have loved that in, say, the Manhattan DA case involving the president's tax returns. Um, and he failed to do that. So so I do think that, you know, and, and that was conspicuous because two previous and similar cases, the Nixon tapes case and the Clinton versus Jones case, had not only ruled against the president, but had done so unanimously. And so I think um, there was some thinking that this case on the law was a very difficult one for Trump to win, and it would have been an important and strong statement uh, for the court to speak with one voice uh, in, in, in rejecting some of those extremely expansive claims of, you know, an almost royal prerogative uh, when it comes to presidential power. And so, uh, so I think that he did not succeed in doing that. And yet, um, you know, this is a wildly polarized uh, court as compared to courts that have come before, where most of the time, the you know, where in, I, I, let me say, in a large fraction of cases, the party of appointing president has very powerful predictive value with respect to the votes of uh, the justices uh, appointed by those presidents. And that has not historically been the case. So so maybe it's the case, the grading on the curve of uh, contemporary sort of voting trends, a 7-2 result in a case like Vance was actually a pretty significant accomplishment. Um, and and I think that, you know, that, that a, a mixed, I guess maybe I'll say, repeat, to, just to repeat what I said before, I think this is a, a mixed bag, you know, some conservative wins, some liberal wins, but the liberal wins really are qualified ones. So I don't think it is the case that the chief justice has handed big sweeping victories um, in cases. Now, Bostick would be the exception. I do think that's a broad case, although, as Ilya points out correctly, that the size of uh, sort of the carve out for religious objections um, 
to the application of anti-discrimination laws, I think, is going to be an important determinant of just how broad and sweeping that opinion is. Uh, but, but, but even to preserve the status quo in a number of areas of law, of course, including prominently abortion, uh, uh, is significant. And I am sure in his heart of hearts, someone who didn't care about the institutional legitimacy of the court or of the country more broadly, John Roberts would have preferred to vote to uphold the Louisiana law. Um, and I think it was a vote that placed other values ahead of uh, his sort of personal and jurisprudential preferences. Uh, and that, I think, is quite significant. Ilya, the last word is to you. You've answered this question a bunch of times, but I'll ask you to answer it one last time in as intense and condensed a way as possible. The proposition is Chief Justice Roberts, the most successful chief since Charles Evans Hughes in 1937 in promoting the institutional legitimacy of the court, agree or disagree? I'm going to fight the hypothetical by disputing whether Charles Evan Hughes succeeded uh, in that particular goal. I mean, if one man's succeeding in cross-partisan legitimization is another man's abandoning your own principles and just going with the flow. Um, You know, I don't know if the court was so politicized under even Chief Justice Rehnquist uh, or Chief Justice Berger. Chief Justice Warren had a lot more unanimity, but that was a time of uh, roiling political contention about the court. So was he successful or unsuccessful? These are hard things to uh, to label. And indeed, the uh, I agree with Kate. It would have been nice, you know, if his project is to have the court speak with one voice. Um, its rate of unanimity didn't change this term versus others, but the only significant case that I'm looking at that was unanimous was Chiafalo, the faithless elector case, which could have roiled our uh, election this fall, but ultimately uh, is not going to. Uh, and so uh, I don't know. Um, uh, I, again, I, I think it's hard to, it's not be a personal failure of John Roberts's. I fail him for many things, but I don't fail him for not being able to uh, you know, have the the courts hold hands and sing kumbaya because that's just the nature of the appointment process. That's the nature of our politics, and that's the nature of the 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 uh, divergent strands of constitutional and statutory interpretation that now map onto partisan preference at a time when the parties themselves are more ideologically sorted than they have been in uh, I don't know since the Civil War. Thank you so much, Kate Shaw and Ilya Shapiro, for an illuminating, rich, and subtle discussion of one of the most memorable Supreme Court terms ever. Kate, Ilya, thank you so much for joining. Thanks so much, Jeff. My pleasure. Today's show was engineered by the National Constitution Center's Crack AV team, Greg Shackler and Kevin Kilburn and David Stotts. And it was produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Maggie Gillespie and Lana Ulrich. The homework of the week? What do you think about the question I posed to our guests at the end of the show? Resolve, Chief Justice John Roberts is the most successful chief since Charles Evans Hughes in 1937 in promoting the institutional legitimacy of the court. Agree or disagree? Drop me a few lines at jrosen at constitutioncenter.org and let me know what you think. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is hungry for a weekly and timely dose of constitutional debate. And always remember, friends, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people from across the country who are inspired to learn by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.